Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, you can go to Luke chapter 2. I actually love how our catechism uh, just brings the weight of what we're longing for in the first advent. That because of our first parents uh, and the brokenness of this world, uh, Christmas is this time where it calls us all out. None of us can do it on our own. None of us can keep the law. And so we're desperately in need of a Savior. And, and this is what we're going to celebrate this morning as we turn our attention to a, a familiar passage, Luke chapter 2. Uh, and as I read it, I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I kind of poured over this passage this week, it actually reminded me of something back in 2007, January 12th, 2007. More specifically, it reminded me of an article in the Washington Post entitled Pearls Before Breakfast. Maybe you've heard me share this story before. But uh, in John, on a cold January day in Washington, D.C., outside of a, well, inside of the uh, LaFont metro station, uh, the, it, the, the, the scene starts like this. This man comes up the stairs, a kind of nondescript, youngish white male with jeans on, long sleeve t-shirt, a Washington Nationals baseball cap, and a, a, a violin case in his hand. He, he locates the, the, the wall on the side. He, he sets out down his case, opens up, and takes out his violin, puts in some seed money there, and begins to play. And he plays for the next 43 minutes. He plays uh, some of the best uh, of classical music he's ever seen. He's playing Mozart and Bach and Schumpert. And, uh, and for 43 minutes, he's playing. But what the vast majority don't know is who he is. Of the thousand commuters that go by, almost none of them stop to listen. They're, they, have, they give many different reasons why they... they they don't stop, but um, just kind of recap what's actually happening in this moment. World famous violinist Joshua Bell playing his $3.5 million Stradivari that was created by Antonio Stradivari in the year 1713. Inside the Washington, D.C. metro, he goes largely unnoticed and completely unrecognized. This same uh, musician, three days earlier, Three days earlier, sold out Boston Stately Symphony Hall, where the cheapest seats were going for $100 a ticket. Uh, he was, after this, headed off to the capitals of Europe to play all over Europe. But in this moment, he was in a subway, playing away. It was, he was hidden in plain sight. And this was put together by the uh, Washington Post. They, they said it was an experiment in context perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. An experiment in context, perception, and priorities. 
as they were planning this, they were a little bit nervous. Well, well, he's going to be recognized. Everyone's going to stop. It's going to shut down the whole subway station. And yet it didn't. In fact, as I mentioned already, almost no one recognized. No one took notice. They just streamed by. And they were interviewed later uh, by the Washington Post to kind of talk about, did you see anything? Was anything different that day? And, and most people said, no, it's just a, a normal Monday morning going off to work. They said, I, I was busy that day. Uh, some were just like, I, I, I had some things on my mind. I had to get through, had to get there. Uh, some were just kind of self-consumed. One gentleman, Calvin Mint, he got to the top of the, here's how the article reads it. He got to the top of the escalator, turned right, and headed out a door to the street. A few hours later, he had no memory that there had been a musician anywhere in sight. Where was he in relation to me? About four feet away. Oh, there's nothing wrong with Mint's hearing. He had buds in his ears. He was listening to his iPod. This is 2007. <laughs> the song that Calvin Mint was listening to was Just Like Heaven by the British rock band, The Cure. It's about a tragic emotional disconnect. A man has found the woman of his dreams, but he can't express the depth of his feeling for her until she's gone. It's about failing to see the beauty of what's plainly in front of your eyes. How ironic is that? <laughs> the, the reason I thought about that is it's about failing to see the beauty what's pl- uh, of what's plainly in front of your eyes. Uh, Joshua Bell was unnoticed, but uh, as, as God comes down and puts on flesh and enters into our world, Jesus is missed by the vast majority. Then, throughout time, and even today, when, when God put on flesh and, and, and he came into our world, uh, no one seemed to be looking for him, even though God said, this is where you should look. The world was just too busy. There was other concerns Uh, across time. This is not the the person or the place that we would look for, for uh, a king of kings to come. You would go to other places for that. And even today, uh, as we look at this passage and and we hear a passage that is so familiar, uh, a passage that maybe you read every year and maybe multiple times a year, a passage that um, we've kind of put on our own sentimentality, our own story, our own narrative, we can actually miss Jesus this morning in this passage. I, I think that's part of the irony. But Luke is revealing a pattern here. He's, he's revealing a pattern that's going to hold true throughout the rest of Jesus' life and ministry and really a pattern for you and I to see and savor Jesus. It's not a pattern that we would come up with our own, but, but maybe you've seen it already. Let, let's go ahead and jump into the text and see how this pattern begins to unfold. It says, in those days, in verse 1, in those days. Again, Luke is, uh, is tying this to historical realities. He doesn't start once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. No, no, he says, in those days, tied to uh, historical realities, but he points to a, a specific historical reality. He points first to Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. He points to where if you were to interview anyone in the first century, any Roman citizen at least, hey, where is the seat of power and authority and glory and all those things? They would say Rome and in a palace in Rome and a guy named Caesar, not just Caesar, Caesar Augustus. That, that's, that's where power and authority and glory is to be found. And so Luke starts there, where the world would think you'd find power, glory, and uh, and. Um, 
a place to worship. See, Caesar was born in the year 63 BC. He was born to uh, Octavian, who was the cousin of Julius Caesar. Uh, He was known as the ruler of rulers. He would become known as the king of kings. He was ruthlessly devoted to extending his glory as far as possible. When, When he was 16 years old, the Roman order Cicero said of him, he is a talented young man. He should be praised, honored, and eliminated. But one by one, he eliminated all of his rivals. So by the year 27 BC, the Roman Senate, which became a puppet in his hand, uh, renamed him Caesar Augustus, the revered one, the worshipped one. He became the first emperor to embrace the deification of his name and his reign. He, he wanted to be known as a god. There, there are inscriptions from the first century and, and before that about Caesar. Uh, one from, the, from 9 BC says this about his birthday. His birthday signaled the beginning of the good news, the euangelion, the gospel for the whole world. Caesar, Augustus. Augustus was referred to as God, son of God, the savior who brings peace, hope, and good news. They would say, glory to Caesar in the highest and on earth, peace. He would say, my peace I give you. And and he did, in a sense. The world was in in a time known as the Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome. Uh, Rome had so far extended its boundaries that that, that, uh, within it, at least, it was a rather peaceful place. I mean, it was a costly peace. It was a, a bloody peace. Uh, and, and to keep that peace out on the borders, it, it, it required a standing army of 500,000 men. And so one day, uh, Caesar would say, ah, I need to raise some more taxes. I need to pay for this army. And this is what Luke tells us about. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, the, revered, the revered one, the worshipped one, the one who claims to be God, the one who, uh, has, the legend says he was born miraculously of a serpent, Caesar Augustus, this one issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. I like what uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says about this. He says, this man, this king, this absolute monarch lifts his finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple undertakes a hazardous journey at the whim of a king. Only notice the result, the birth of a child in a little town that just happens to be the one mentioned in an ancient Hebrew prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. It's Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient of days. See, Luke starts with the most powerful, the most glorious person, uh, maybe in the world up until this point, Caesar Augustus. But then he, he asked this question, Who's really in charge? Who's really in charge? Is it the powerful monarch on the throne? It's this struggle we all have. Like if our government or or a politician or someone would just rise up, then God can accomplish some things. But he's asking this question, who's in charge? So he starts with the highest and then he begins to go down this ladder. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius, now you're going to the governor of Syria. So you've come down from Caesar to Quirinius, someone with still a lot of power and everyone went to their town to register. 
Everyone uh, scrambled. In Joseph and Mary's case, they would uh, scramble 75 miles. And Luke tells us they went up to Bethlehem. Yeah, it was an uphill journey, even though they were in the north, down south to uh, Bethlehem. They're scrambling 75 miles. And it, he talks about Joseph. You've come down the rung quite far now. But, but then he talks about Mary. You've gone even further. And in the end, it says, and a son, at this point, a nameless son, is born. You don't get any lower than that. But, but let's, let's go back. So Joseph uh, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. So, so we know that there, there's this, this problem. 75 miles away is where uh, Mary and, and Joseph live, but, but the Savior needs to be born in Bethlehem. And so this monarch issues a decree, and you see the sovereignty of God reigning and ruling through even wicked rulers in place. And so they, they move. They take that 75-mile journey. Now, we like to sentimentalize this and be, oh, isn't that cute? The nice holy family. And, and they go, and, and she gives birth in a little barn. Like, no, this is horrific. This is brutal. She's nine months pregnant. She's got to travel from here to Fort Collins on the back of a donkey. And it's her first child. She might be 13, 14, maybe not more than that, years old. She doesn't know anyone. She's got Joseph, who she's pledged to be married. It's all scandal. It's all difficulty. And, and now the, the, the oppressor of God's people has made a decree. And so they go. They go to Bethlehem. It says, when they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Oh, I skipped one. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be, oh, hey, to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Well, so in our kind of story in our mind, from the Christmas pageants and otherwise, we got this picture of the Holy Family coming in and late at night rolling into this town, Bethlehem, and, and looking around and, and not finding any rooms and, and having to go outside of the town and, and going to a little barn uh, and then uh, Mary giving birth uh, by herself in, in front of some barn animals. That's, that's actually not what, what has happened here. Uh, that, that's more of like, first of all, the barn looks more like a, a German barn from the Middle Ages. All of your nativity scenes are wrong. Uh, but uh, furthermore, in a Middle Eastern hospitality culture, there's no way that, that she was out alone by herself in the countryside giving birth. No, this is of the line of David. They go to the city of David. They say, we're here because we're part of the line of David. And, and Middle Eastern hospitality, then as now, would open their doors and say, uh, come on in. So, so archaeologists, tell, archaeologists tell us that uh, this, this town had these peasant homes, maybe Five or six hundred square feet, these rectangle buildings, they were all uh, mostly all broken up into three sections. So on one end of the house, and each one has its own door, one end of the house is a small uh, guest room. 
or your Bible might say an inn where, where people could come in and you could have a guest. And then the, in the middle section, the largest section is the family room where uh, the whole family sleeps and cooks and talks and, and does their life together. And then another smaller section, a couple steps down is this place where they would open the door at night and bring in the, the livestock, bring in the animals. And they would help uh, protect the livestock, but also keep the house warm. And in between uh, this uh, kind of upper level and the lower level, there's going to be a wooden manger where they would fill with hay and other food for the animals. And this is how they would go. Well, when, it, when, it, when the time has come, implication is that she's been there not just that day, but, but maybe several days, even maybe some weeks, uh, it, it's time to give birth. And so uh, Joseph, being a Sadiq, righteous Jewish man, uh, along with all the other men, would, would leave the house and the, the women would come in, the midwives would come in, and they would tend to this young pregnant girl until she would give birth. And, and then they would bring the men back in. And it says she wrapped him. And when she gave birth to her firstborn son, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is the story of Jesus. But again, he goes largely missed. Largely missed when he, when he came, largely missed uh, when, when he continues to live his life. He, he will uh, grow up in, in relative obscurity for 30 years. We, we really don't know much except for one incident when he was 12. Uh, this is a pattern that Luke is trying to reveal to us. The, the, there's a way to see Jesus, but it's not in the way that the world thinks we would find a Savior. We would find glory. See, we are all in search of significance, salvation, and a Savior. That's true of humanity across time, across culture. But, but the story of humanity is of one looking in wrong place after wrong place after wrong place. We're all searching for significance, salvation, and a Savior. We do it on a macro level. We do it on individual micro levels. On a macro level, it's the pursuit of religious uh, attainment. And so you might be from the East and, and Buddhist and trying to find the, the eightfold path of enlightenment. And if you just do the right things, then you'll attain your significance and your salvation. Or it might be Islam, which means submission. If you just submit to the, the will of God and, and you do it right in the end, maybe then you will enter into salvation. Or it might be uh, modern day secular humanism, that, that maybe the pol political policy or a scientific advancement or a therapeutic treatment or the next drug will, will bring significance, salvation, and enlightenment. And everywhere we try and try and try, it just seems to not make any progress. And that happens on micro levels as well. It's the, it's the teenage girl that's just hoping, uh, find me significant, like my social media posts. It's the boy who's like, find me significant. I'm going to uh, go play sports so people can say that I'm worth something. It's the mom or dad who are saying, my kid's happiness, my kid's success, that will reflect back on me and the world will know I have significance. They'll be my salvation. It's the corporate executive who's just climbing the ladder, rung after rung, just saying, the next rung, that, then I will show the world that I'm worthy. Then I'll have enough money. Then I'll have the right title. And it just never seems like you get to the right rung. And so people just keep climbing and climbing and climbing. And again, I've already said it, but, but Christmas is a giant call out. All of our efforts, all of our efforts for finding significance in self, 
fail time and time and time again. It's this cosmic call out because we are in this world of darkness trying to break through. And so we think that if, if we do it in religion or ourself or whatever, whatever your thing is, whatever you're looking for significance, we think then, then I'll get it. But the problem isn't just out there. We know that the problem is in here. We're part of the darkness. We're part of the darkness. Or as um, Gandalf says to Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, we try to defeat the darkness. Because always after a defeat and respite of the darkness, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. The shadow takes another shape and grows again. We, We try to solve one thing and the darkness comes back again. But this was not what the world was looking for. Last week, Rick asked the question, why did the Jews miss the Messiah when he came? Because they were looking for a Messiah to be a conquering king to rid them of their enemies, to rid them of Caesar Augustus. And he didn't come for that. The Romans were looking to Caesar Augustus, deliver us, keep us safe, keep us protected by your armies. The Greeks were looking for a philosopher to deliver them to enlightenment. Secular elites, again, are looking for the the next breakthrough, the the humanism to finally rise up and, and, and people to finally love each other. And even in the church, we're tempted. We're tempted by the lights and the shine and the, uh, maybe the next politician, maybe he'll restore our, our prominence and our significance in the world. Again, we're looking in all the wrong places. But the pattern of this story that Luke is unfolding is a pattern of humility. It begins to roll out in Jesus' 30 years of, of obscurity. And then it, when Jesus does finally go public, who does he gather? He gathers nobodies. Fishermen, tax collectors, farmers. And he begins to just very slowly live life with them. And he walks everywhere with them. And he has slow meals with them. This is the invasion of God into our planet. He comes to the broken and the humble. When people, when the, when the elites start to take notice, it isn't because they want to see Jesus. They don't like that that the people that are gathered around him. It's the, the down and the out. It's the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, the, the unclean, that they're starting to gather around Jesus. And so the people in power don't like that. But this is a pattern for seeing and savoring Jesus. The only way you and I can actually see and savor Jesus is to get real low. So this, is, this has always been the case with Jesus. But, but we should ask the question, why did Jesus who is the co-creator of the cosmos, can do anything at any time he wishes, why did he come in such humility? And why do we have to get so low to find him? Why did he come subject to the darkness of our world? And again, this was a difficult, terrible, it's, it's a little no-name part of the empire. In, in the, it's, it's the back alley of the Motel 8 in La Junta, Colorado. The, The king of kings comes and is born among us. Why? Why did he come subject to the darkness instead of just come and destroy the darkness? Because we already said it. If Jesus came the first time only to destroy the darkness, there would be no one left to save. And if you don't believe that, you don't understand your your own hearts. He didn't come to destroy the darkness, but to take on the darkness. He came, we see in this this pattern, he came uh, rejected, 
not to be accepted. He came to be destroyed and not to be crowned as king. He came not to bring judgment, but to bear the judgment you and I deserve. He came to take the rejection we deserve so that one day he can return and he can end evil without ending us. This is the pattern. So so we see he's laid in a wooden manger, but he'll grow up and be nailed to a wooden cross. We see that he, there, there's no room for him so that one day he can make room for us in his throne room. We see that he's got um, clothed in old cloths, but one day he'll be stripped naked to pay for the penalty of your sin and mine. So how do we have eyes to see this next week as we move towards Christmas? How do we actually see the glory of Jesus? Well, I think uh, our story about Joshua Bell gives us a little hint as well. Let me go back to that. This is later in the article. It's a great article. It's like 16 pages, so it's a, it's a while. But um, this, this little scene, I thought, there, there it is. It says, a couple minutes into it, something revealing happens. A woman and her preschooler emerge from the escalator. The woman is walking briskly, and therefore so is the child. She's got his hand. I had a time crunch, recalls Sharon Parker, an IT director for a federal agency. I had an 8.30 training class, and first I had to rush Evie off to his teacher and then rush back to work, then to the training facility in the basement. Evie is her son, Evan. Evan is three. You can see Evan clearly in the video. He's the cute black kid in the parka who keeps twisting around to look at Joshua Bell as he's being propelled to the door. There was a musician, Parker says, and my son was intrigued. He wanted to pull over and listen, but I was rushed for time. Later in the article, it says, There was no ethnic or demographic pattern to distinguish the people who stayed to watch Bell or the ones who gave money from the vast majority who hurried on past, unheeding. Whites, blacks, and Asians, young and old, men and women were represented in all three groups, but the behavior of one demographic remained absolutely consistent. Every single time a child walked past, he or she tried to stop and watch. Every single time, a parent scooted the kid away. Jesus will say in Matthew 19, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We have to to be like children to be able to see the glory of the Savior. We, we have to get low. Or as one poet put it, what is life if full of care? We have no time to stand and stare. What is life if full of care? We have no time to stand and stare. If we're so busy with our agenda and the stuff we have to get, we will miss Jesus. So we have to embrace the heart posture of children. That's the first one. There's another way to see him, and that is to get to know him. Spend some time with him. At the end of the article, it says this. As it happens, exactly one person recognized Joshua Bell. She didn't arrive until, the, until near the very end. For Stacy Furukawa, a demographer at the Commerce Department, there was no doubt. She doesn't know much about classical music, but she had been in the audience three weeks earlier as Bell's free concert at the Library of Congress. And here he was, the international virtuoso, sawing away, begging for money. 
She had no idea what the heck was going on. But whatever it was, she wasn't about to miss it. Furukawa positioned herself 10 feet away from Belle, front row, center. She had a huge grin on her face. The grin and Furukawa remained planted in that spot until the very end. She says, it was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping, not even looking. And some were flipping quarters to him. Quarters! I wouldn't do that to anybody. I was thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of city do I live in that this could happen? But she recognized him. She had seen him before. And when she saw him again, she knew that, oh, this is the most important thing right now. Regardless of what else I have going on in my day, this is the most important thing. So, so I think we need to get low, embrace Christmas like a child might embrace Christmas, and, and begin to look around and, we, and hear the music of heaven and see in the most unlikely places where God might be showing up. And then we got to get to know him. Spend some time in prayer and reading his word and just knowing so that when we see him and we see this pattern emerge itself in our world, whether that's in a conversation with your spouse or your children or with your barista or, or at work or, or, or in some moment where all of a sudden you hear the faint music of heaven playing, oh, this is where Jesus is at right now. Everything else is going to take a back seat to what is going on because I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us to that end. Jesus, thank you for revealing to us a way to see and savor you. Lord, help us to slow down this week to have eyes to see and ears to hear where you might be at work in our relationships, in our inconveniences, in, uh, in, in different ways. I believe that you want to meet with every person in this room. And so, Lord, help us to be a people that is eager to see and savor you. Help us to slow down and help us to rejoice when we, we, we see you at work. Lord, I pray that Redemption Parker would be marked by a people that gets low. Gets low in seeing you, gets low in serving one another, gets low in serving our city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.